0: Number 2, God's Mission, 4th Quarter, 2023. John Pauline.
1: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start Lesson 2, God's Mission to Us, Part 2 in God's Mission, My Mission. And Dr. John Pauline is our moderator, and our opening prayer will be by Ashley.
2: Dear Heavenly Father, thank
3: you so much for another Sabbath day where this wonderful group can all gather together to study your word. Thank you so much that you've given us these lessons to open our minds to what we should be doing in this life we have. And just please open our hearts, open our minds today as we go through the lesson. And also please be with Dr. Pauline as he leads us. And also, yeah, just be with all of our loved ones wherever they are. And we love you so much. Thank you. And amen.
4: Amen. Thank you. This is the second in a row that is titled God's Mission to Us. So it's part two, God's Mission to Us. So the focus would seem to be a little more on God's mission than our mission. So with that in mind, let's read John 14, verse 6.
3: Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me.
4: All right. This seems to be a very clear text and a very exclusive text says no one comes to the father except through me. And of course, that immediately raises the question, what about all those people who never heard the name of Jesus? What about all those people in areas where Christian faith is hardly even known, or the Bible is hardly even known? Whatever that means here, and we'll discuss that for a little bit, it seems to be saying the only way to salvation is in Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is one of seven statements in the gospel of john where jesus says i am with a predicate i am the bread of life i am the good shepherd i am the door of the sheep i am the resurrection and the life here he says i am the way i am the truth i am the life and so this is a pattern in the gospel of john the i am reflects back on the old testament And Yahweh in the Old Testament repeatedly says, I am, followed by something else. I am the only Savior, for example. So you see that in this, it's really reflecting the Yahweh passages of the Old Testament now in the mouth of Jesus. And what I like to point out here is that if Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, because that's what he seems to be saying here by utilizing these terms, then there's one picture of God in the Bible. And it's legitimate to take a text like John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, to apply to the one God. And John seems very much wanting to do this, that there's no double picture of God, you know, Old Testament God, New Testament God. It's legitimate when you're reading the stories of the Old Testament. We'll be doing some of that in these lessons. It's legitimate when you're doing that, to read them in the light of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus. Not in the immediate context of saying, well, you know, what did they understand back in Old Testament times? But in the larger picture of the canon as a whole, what is the picture of God? And that picture of God is defined. In the new testament in the life and the death of jesus christ so it's legitimate in a canonical approach to ask the question this particular story about god seems rather disturbing how can we make sense of it in the light of the gospel of john in the light of the incredible revelation of god that came in jesus christ so Part of that revelation is that Jesus Christ then is the only way to God. And if he's also the Yahweh of the Old Testament, it makes a little bit more sense now, doesn't it? That truly he is the representative of the Godhead that we interact with as human beings. And therefore, he truly can say, no one comes to the Father but by me, not even Old Testament uh, Israel. So combining that, let's look at John 1.9, because John 1.9, in a real sense, says the opposite.
3: The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world.
4: All right. So here, the light, which is a reflection of Jesus Christ in John 1, that light impacts everyone in the world, not just those who have heard about Jesus. So you have a bit of a tension here. One says, I am the only way to salvation. And the other one says, but God has provided the light of salvation to every human being in some form or another. How do you reconcile those two concepts? Rita?
0: The John 14 verse, it says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's responding to Thomas, who says, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? how can we get to where you're going? And he's saying, the only way you can get, you can get to where I'm going is through knowing me. And you have met me, you've walked with me for these years. You know me, I am the way.
4: That's fascinating, Rita, because mentally I've always seen this as sort of an absolute statement, but I think I like very much that you're wanting to see it in context and suggesting that He's speaking directly to the disciples, not necessarily to every other human being. That's a very intriguing way of reading the text, and I find it very interesting and almost compelling. But go ahead; you are going to continue,
0: which is not at odds with John one nine, where John is saying that Christ is the light. He's the embodiment of God. Absolute truth is the whole light, and through seeing him. Then
4: you can see what God is like. So, Rita's done an intriguing thing here, and that is suggesting that maybe John 1 9 is the more comprehensive text. That Jesus is not necessarily saying, you know, you have to know as much about me as you disciples do in order to be saved, but perhaps he is simply saying, you know, I'm answering your question, Thomas. I'm the only way that you're going to be able to understand what God is like. Larry.
5: In a broad sense, since Christ was the God of creation and is the God of Yahweh that's discussed in the Old Testament. None of us exist without Christ. Therefore, the only way that anybody who is existing can come to God is through Christ, because I've always heard this in a very narrow New Testament idea. And what you're suggesting in the ideas that are coming is that this is much bigger That It's because of something that happened in the Old Testament that everybody gets their access to God through Christ, but not in the narrow way that you suggested of having heard the name Christ that we started. And I like what you've done there.
4: Well, I think that's the way we tend to
5: read it as an absolute statement
4: and fairly literal. But I think Rita has pointed us to an important piece of the context, and I'm going to look on that more deeply myself uh, moving forward sean
6: the light here that enlightens in john 1 9 in the writer's mind is qualified in the next verse and onward yet the world knew him not so the potential for this light that goes to everyone and not exclusively through jesus is a matter of acceptance or rejection of this man called jesus so the world knew him not. The larger, broader world knew him not.
4: But those who did know him received of this light. So there's, it's a tension between two things. That there's this broader concept of light, and it's somewhat more limited. But the specific light in Jesus Christ is known to those who have received him, to those who have known him. I would like us to listen to John 20, 21 and 22, which I think bears on this question a little bit.
3: Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit.
4: All right. So to keep this in mind, what impact does the Holy Spirit have? And the way that John in particular brings out the work of the Holy Spirit, what impact does that have on the topic of mission? All right, Lou, go ahead.
2: Well, I think it has absolute impact on the whole thing, because I think sometimes in our narrow human efforts, we reduce God down to we have to go through a certain channel, a certain way to be accepted or heard by God. And that is so far from the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one. I love that illustration that Ellen White gives of the natives that have never heard the name of Jesus or God, and they're walking down a path. And there's a little injured bird there or something, and they're gentle and kind to that little bird. And that's the Holy Spirit. So I think sometimes in our effort to do good, we can do harm by limiting God's, that we can only go through a certain channel to have our prayers heard and understood. And I think that does God an injustice.
4: I think those who study the concept of mission are very much aware of the work of the Holy Spirit, not simply biblically, but by experience. And what missionaries today are more and more doing is when they go to a new place, instead of asking the question, you know, who can I speak to that will listen to the gospel? The first question is, what was the Holy Spirit doing in this place before I arrived? And there's the sense that the missionary work is not a pioneering work. It is actually a follow-on work to the pioneering work that the Holy Spirit has already done. So when we're thinking of mission, I think Jesus gives people a greater handle on what God is like. He gives a clearer picture of the process of salvation. But we must never forget that he is available in every place before any cross-cultural missionary arrives. And I think that's a foundational point that will impact everything we do the entire quarter. All right, let's go on to number two in the handout. And there it invites us to begin by reading Matthew 28 and verses 18 to 20. A text we're probably familiar with, but maybe find one or two more things to see in it.
3: And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age.
4: All right, taking a closer look at this text, and beginning with verse 18, it says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, that is often not included in the text. We go straight to verse 19. Go into all the world and preach the gospel everywhere that you go. But the foundation is verse 18, that Jesus is given all authority on earth. Now, in the King James Bible, it says power, and that's a way that you can translate authority in the greek but there's a separate greek word for power it's the word dunamis from which we get dynamite that's not the word here the word here is the word for authority and one thing in this group that we can keep in mind when we speak of god's authority how does god exercise that authority he exercises it not by intimidation not by force not by overwhelming people but rather by gentle persuasion. Is the way God exercises authority, but he has that authority over the whole earth, and that's the foundation, and he invites us when we go out to operate in the way that God operates, uh, not with manipulation, intimidation, or other methods that might seem useful to us. Coming to verse 19 and 20, one thing I did not know early on was that there's only one verb, one main verb in this particular statement. The go that you find in most translations is not a verb, it's a participle. And a participle is subordinate. It's a verbal form, but it's subordinate to the main verb. So when you want to understand the Greek sentence, you have to determine what's the main verb, what's the central point here. And there's only one in this text, and that is make disciples. So what Jesus is calling on people to do is make disciples. Participles are alongside of that so where do you make disciples wherever you go among all the nations what do you do along with making disciples you baptize them present tense you teach them present tense the go is actually an aorist participle which means in principle it's reflecting something that comes before you make disciples you could translate this wherever you go make disciples It can be used, the aorist participle can be used as a command. So the translations are not totally wrong here. It's just the word is, it's not an imperative. And so that uh, the command force is more derived than it is basic. So when it comes to the gospel commission, the primary commission is to make disciples. What are the implications of that? In my mind, and I don't know whether there's a translation of the Bible that says this, maybe the King James, but in my mind, this text said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, which sounds like evangelistic meetings. It sounds like mass, uh, television, et cetera, et cetera. The main verb is make disciples. What are the implications of that for mission? All right, read in
0: You don't have to go anywhere. It's right here where you are, your okay. neighbor,
4: your okay. family. So it takes away this sense of you have to move before you can do this. (laughs) You can start where you are. So wherever you find yourself is a nuance of this expression, make disciples. Lou?
2: Couldn't it be a promise? And the Holy Spirit is shining through. God's love is shining through. You will make disciples. It doesn't mean you have to make any effort on your own because that won't be successful. But if we're depending on God and the Holy Spirit and his light is shining through, it's kind of, to me, like a promise. This is what will happen in your life if you're connected in the right way.
6: Okay. Thank you, Sean. Yes, in addressing the implications that you're asking about in this verse, I'd like to go back to verse eighteen and speak briefly about my experience with authority. In my work, I have to deal with quite a few authorities, regulatory authorities, those who define how my work should be carried forward, whether with soil, air, water, etc, vegetation biology, historical documents, and historical monuments. So, In the light of my experience with earthly authority, I realized that the authority that we're speaking about here that Jesus exercises and that the Godhead exercises has massive implications or at least potentially massive implications on how we go about making disciples. Rule following to the T, and I'm just going to set it up this way, rule following to the T, which is what I have to labor under. There are no compromises with respect to regulatory agencies who govern my work. None. Rule following in terms of the earth and that authority structure can be expressed very differently, I believe, in Jesus's leadership and his authority. Now, let me illustrate that by saying I have, in the course of my life and ministry, enjoyed really wonderful relationships with people in an effort to teach them about Christ that breaks a lot of the rules of typical approach, typical evangelistic efforts, if we could put it that way, in relational experiences with some of these folks. So, and Jesus allows me to do that. So, Jesus's authority looks a little bit different in this boots on ground way of reaching people through my life. Okay. Now, the implications on how we go about expressing ourselves with verse 19 and this three-part process, I've often wondered, and help me, it's more of a question than a statement, is this a three-part formula that is an absolute Or is it potentially that under the authority of the Godhead and under the leadership, the gentle leadership of Christ, can we simply teach and then not expect to have to go to the next step? Can we simply baptize? Now, I've had this experience several times in my life with people who I study with, work with, come to friendship and terms with. They want me to baptize them, and I have, and I have not baptized them into a church body. So, I've rambled on here, but the implications of the way Jesus uses his authority and this sense of formulation about how we go about making disciples is something that I wanted to share with you from my perspective and just get some feedback on that. Thank you.
4: Well, when it comes to the structure of the sentence, there is one verb. So the one thing that Jesus is asking for is to make disciples corollary to that while you're making disciples wherever you may be baptize and teach it doesn't say baptize into a specific denomination but i think the whole point is baptizing is something that happens when a person comes to christ and i sense a certain tension within the adventist church context because we tend to ask people to wait on baptism until they've understood every detail Of Adventist doctrine and are ready to join the church. And so I think we sometimes baptize people later than we should. You know, they're really fired up in Christ and ready to go. Sometimes we baptize them earlier than we should because we know that they're ready in Christ, but they don't know everything yet, and then they get surprised when they join the church. So it creates a bit of a tension. And I've discussed that with Mark Finley and others. And I think most evangelists sense that there's a time when a person's ready for baptism, they might not be ready for the church just yet, but we've tended to put those two together. So baptizing and teaching are a corollary of making disciples. They're things you do along the way as you're making disciples is what I think the grammar would point us
7: to. Arthur? I would like to welcome to our forum my brother Dini Spanda. He's from Zimbabwe. We have not met physically, that is what is interesting, but we have spoken a great while online and he is one person who is very active to share the gospel with a lot of people. I've had the opportunity to to request for some books for him from Pino, which he has expressed that he really enjoyed. And he has been incorporating the messages into his preaching. And he says to me that the books have been very helpful in his Christian life as well as in his ministry. So this is my brother, Queen Nkosi Aboswanda.
4: Welcome, Nkosi. We are delighted to have you with us. We would welcome any questions or comments you might wish to make. Arthur, you may continue. Some years back, I was
7: talking to a lady from my church. I was born in a small town called Wange in Zimbabwe. In Africa, Adventism has grown by leaps and bounds. And it's not uncommon to run evangelistic meetings and have a lot of people getting baptized. But I think what happens afterwards is people don't tend to stay in the church. So in the conversation, she was remarking and saying she thinks that everyone In our town, has once been baptized into the Adventist Church. So she meant it as a joke, yeah. But she says she's now sure that everyone in our town has once been baptized in our church. So now I'm also trying to understand what exactly is our understanding of baptism. Is it more of the correct ritual, that we, you need to do the correct ritual, then you'll be safe. Maybe usually in our evangelistic meetings, we may have a topic that addresses the correct way of baptism, where we try to say sprinkling is not the proper way, imagine is the proper way. I think that on its own is important for us to know like what the original language meant when it said baptized. The question now part is this one, is there any other way of understanding what Jesus meant when he says baptizing them in the name, singular, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. While I know there is this ritual that we do, but is there another spiritual deeper meaning of that? I know when I listen to people who know better about languages and all, especially in the the Old Testament, we are told that the name of a person also meant or symbolized their character as well. So could we... Stretch that to mean Jesus also didn't just mean the ritual alone, but he probably also meant that dip them in to the character of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. So if I were to think that is true, then it would make sense when he says we should make disciples. So it's a process of helping someone to develop an interest in the character of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as well as maybe through the relationship that we are having, kind of immerse them into the character of the Father, the Son. We can do the ritual. I understand that part. But is there maybe a deeper meaning? Let them be immersed in the character of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them everything that I've commanded you. Is that an accurate understanding of Scripture?
4: Well, I I like what you are saying. Was that exactly in Jesus' mind when he said this? I'm not so sure, but I like the idea of baptizing into the character. I think that's compatible. In church history, baptism is, on the one hand, a ritual that simply represents something. It's a symbolic Yes, symbolic of death and resurrection, new life. For other churches, there's actual power that comes in the baptism. So there's differences there. I think as an Adventist, I would see this as a symbol of new life in the person and also connecting with the community. So both of those, I think, are involved in the New Testament. The baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there are other places where they're baptized in the name of Jesus. So the exact formula, the exact process, maybe is not as important as what it represents. The change, I think, was in a recent television program called The Chosen, which talks about, revisits the life of Jesus. Mary Magdalene says to Nicodemus, I was one thing, and now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. You know, that sense of a total transformation, that when Jesus comes into the life, and the baptism is a baptism into Jesus, into his life, death, and resurrection. So it's a symbol on the one hand, and yet when done in faith, there's power also involved. So perhaps we should leave it there for this particular conversation. But thank you for probing deeply into the language of this text. Henry.
8: You were asking about the implications of that statement by Jesus. And I think that he was addressing three different topics. On the one hand, on Matthew 28, verse 17, there is a statement that they were coming close, but some of them were in doubt. So that coming to me is what prompts the first statement from Jesus in verse 18. Since some of you are in doubt, let me tell you, all the dominion has been given to me. So stop doubting. If you are here, it's because you believe me and I want to assure you that everything was given to me. In order to work with the doubt element that was introduced in the prior verse. Addressing that, then, with that authority, you can now follow this next directive, guidance. Go and Matateo. I don't know how to pronounce that word in Greek. And I was looking at some translations and some of them say teach. Some of them say make followers. Some of them say make disciples. There is a subtle difference between teaching and making disciples and making followers. Because I have attended classes for the sake of getting a grade, right? Some of us, we have done it. We are not interested in being experts on following everything is just because we had a prerequisite that we need to follow in order to get all of the credits that are needed to move into the next thing. That's teaching. You have no authority on changing minds. You have no possibility because that's up to the student. But you give the material. So that's why I feel that there is a subtle thing that we need to deal with in the Greek word there. For make followers is different to me, implies more than just to
4: teach. Well, it's the verb form of the word disciple. So it is making disciples. It is creating disciples. Yeah.
8: Okay. And that is important because in order to make disciples, this is where I have the conflict here with the authority of God. Because in order to make disciples, I need to make you change your mind. I need to make sure that you change direction. But when I am teaching, it's not up to me. It's up to the student. And this is what I think God always does. He is giving you the information so we can make the decision. Even when he was here, he was not forcing anybody. He was teaching. That was he was doing with the expectation of creating followers, but the following was up to the student. And then that's what I prefer to have: that teaching part. He was very flexible. He was teaching, and people was making the decision themselves. And then the next element that is very tied together: baptizing them. When one tries to learn another language. They said that the best way to do it is for full immersion, not by sprinkling once in a while, right? Not by whenever you have a chance. The best way to learn a little language is by full immersion. And that's what it means to me, what he's doing. Okay, when you go out to all the nations, you need to give them a full immersion teaching in the proper way, in the master way of the teacher, give them the full immersion experience in what it means God, what he looks like. So then they will be completely empowered to make an informed decision fully with no bias, because now you have seen me. That's To me, the implication that I have to have, therefore, my acceptance to that invitation. And that forces me as a teacher to get to know my subject in the best way possible so that my student can have the full immersion experience of what God looks like.
4: Let me reflect on the implications of this. Jesus doesn't say go to all the world and do evangelistic meetings. He doesn't say go all the world and preach. This make disciples is a very specific term and a very interesting term, and it has a number of implications. One of them is you can't make disciples traveling around. Our typical method of evangelism is a traveling preacher bouncing from place to place. Evangelists never make deep-rooted relationships, or rarely do at least deep-rooted relationships with the people they're working with, they're not there long enough. So you can't make disciples traveling around. So that's not what Jesus is asking for here. If it happens, you can do the same thing somewhere else. And that needs to happen from time to time. Discipling means you have something worth sharing. You have something, not just something somebody else taught you. You have something to share. Jesus says, go back to your community and tell them what happened to you. So discipling means if I'm going to mentor someone, I need to have experience in what I am mentoring. The mentoring discipleship relationship, it it happens in every phase of life, business, etc. So the mentor needs to have life experience, knowledge that the disciple does not have. And in relationship, over time, these things are absorbed across the membrane of the relationship, if you wish. For discipleship to happen, you have to meet people where they are. So if you want to disciple, you know, Hindus in southern India, you got to go there. You got to know where they are. You got to meet them where they are. You have to learn something of their culture and their faith and their background. So discipling means meeting people where they are and spending time together with them. And discipling is only going to go to the world if some people disciple across cultures. And that's where we get the concept of missionaries, to go across culture and disciple people from another culture who then can disciple within that culture. You see, So when Jesus said make disciples, he set some very important implications for everything we do in the way of mission. And let me just add one more thing. In Genesis 1 is the model for making disciples. God created Adam in relationship with God. So Adam was God's disciple, but then God placed Adam in charge of the earth. The earth was Adam's disciple. So there's the pattern of discipleship. We pass on what we've learned from God to others, and that process is ongoing. The disciple becomes the teacher. The disciple becomes the mentor and then the chain goes on and on. So the authors of this lesson want to be very clear that the process of mission is more one-on-one than it is anything that happens in mass. All right, Livius,
9: Arthur and Henry basically said what I was trying to say about baptizing and immersing people. And with respect to mission, making disciples, I know that this is like the verb here and the important part of this passage, but baptizing them in the name of the, isn't this a process of how we go about our mission is to immerse people into the character of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I was going to read the definition of baptizo that is used here, but I think I'll skip it. But it essentially means to dip, to Dunk as with a dye to immerse a garment as if you were dyeing it. And when you do that, the entire garment is transformed and changed. And so in order for us to immerse individuals and you know, to have a relationship, to build relationships with people where we transform them, I don't want to say transform them. We have to really know God in order to do this correctly. Am I making sense? Yes, you
4: are. And that's exactly where we're going to go now. So that's a good transition to number three. And in number three, we'll start by reading Revelation 14, 6, and 7, because the whole point of this lesson is it's God's mission to us. God's mission is primary, just as God created Adam, and that began a discipling relationship that wouldn't have been there if God hadn't created Adam. So the whole pattern of mentoring discipleship is set within creation. That means ultimately it's about knowing God because we disciple people into the same kind of relationship with God that we have. So let's read Revelation 14, 6 and 7.
3: Then I saw another angel flying in mid heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water.
4: All right, if we had more time, what I would have done at this point is ask the question, What is the gospel? and let us wrestle with that for a little bit. But let me just state in the broadest terms the gospel is God's gracious provision of free salvation for everyone. The good news, God is on your side. That's the broadest concept of gospel. The more specific definition that we find in 1 Corinthians 15 from Paul is that it is the death and resurrection of Jesus that is the gospel. So it's in the death and resurrection of Jesus that the gospel comes to us most clearly. And that would be the more specific definition. And we would say that in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we have both the clearest knowledge of what god is like and also see the provision for life change life transformation we don't change anybody we don't transform lives but the power of the resurrection can do that i was once one thing and now i'm completely different and what happened in between was him you know that's the power of the gospel it's the the knowledge of what god is like but also the awareness that in Jesus Christ is provision for complete life transformation that changes everything. So here in Revelation is the final proclamation to the world, and it is an eternal gospel. All right, let me pause there, and Robert has a comment. It's the eternal gospel, the one that has always been and
2: always will be, and that is the character of God to be. It's not what his enemies are
4: made about to be. Well, it is interesting that it says eternal gospel here. Yes. And the predecessor for that in the book of Revelation is chapter 13, verse 8. What does Revelation 13, 8 add to this?
3: And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of of life, of the lamb that was slaughtered.
4: All right. That particular translation strikes me as just a tad awkward because what I think the text is saying, if you follow the Greek wording and order, is that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I think that the translator was trying to avoid the idea, well, the cross didn't happen at the foundation of the world. What could John possibly be saying? But I think we would understand that in a real sense, the cross was set. Before creation, that God already said, if we give creatures free will, things could go wrong. And what are we going to do about it? How are we going to take responsibility? And God does. So the eternal gospel then is about God, the one whose character is at the root of that good news. What God is like is the greatest good news. And in Jesus Christ, we have the clearest representation of what God is like. So generally, you have here a story. There's an angel proclaiming an everlasting gospel. And when he opens his mouth, he says, fear God, give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. Now, here's the problem. You would assume that if he's proclaiming the eternal gospel, that the gospel would be in verse seven. But there's three commands. Fear God, give him glory, worship him. The gospel is not a command. The gospel is good news. It's about a reality that we didn't know before. The only reality in this text is the hour of his judgment has come. And it raises the interesting question if the hour of judgment is the gospel, what do you get from judgment? In what sense, how is judgment the equivalent of the gospel, if that is the case? If that's the only gospel you have here, What does judgment have to do with it? I'd like to suggest that what judgment says about God is that God is fair. God will undo the injustices of the world. Perhaps in God's mind, this message in the book of Revelation is particularly for the end of time, when the fairness of God, the character of God, is a major issue. You talk to most atheists, and they'll say, well, I'm this way because I don't like God. You know, the God that I hear, I don't want to exist, and I'd rather live without him and not have to deal with him. So clarifying the character of God is definitely an issue for today, and judgment is all about clarifying the character of God. James 2, verses 12 and 13 say that at the heart of judgment is mercy. When God judges, the heart of judgment is mercy, and those who show mercy will receive mercy in the judgment so perhaps when john says the judgment is the gospel he has something like james in mind that in god's judgment the mercy of god is being applied to everyone who will receive it but to those who show no mercy it's clear that they have not grasped the character of the god of mercy moving forward to number four is Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And let's take time to read through that text, Genesis chapter 12, and verses 1 to 3.
3: Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed.
4: All right, so God promises three things. He says, I will show you a land. Doesn't tell him what land. All right, I'll make you a great nation. Doesn't tell him how. I'll make you a blessing on the earth. Is not very clear what exactly that blessing is. So, here we have an introduction of three things that God plans to do through Abraham. And after a comment from Larry, we want to go to Genesis 17, which states the three promises again, but is more specific on each of these three. Larry.
5: This morning, when I was studying for this, For whatever reason, I picked up the Revised Standard Version, and when I read that, and it states uh, in 12.3, and by you, all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. Completely different idea.
4: Well, in English, we have active and passive. The active is when you do something to someone else or something else and the passive is when something is done with you. Greek actually has three, the active, middle, and passive. And one of the challenges of Greek is that the middle and the passive are sometimes different forms of the word, but often they're not. And I suspect if we looked carefully, that's what we would find here. You have a middle passive. So you could translate it, will be blessed, or will bless themselves. Both of those are legitimate translations of a single form that is somewhat ambiguous. I think if you take the larger picture of the Bible, this is all about the nations becoming blessed through the children of Abraham. So I think the passive is the correct translation in the light of the Old Testament. And the middle is a possible one, however, and so when you see the translators wrestling back and forth, you can tell that it's not a slam dunk either way. But I would go with the passive here myself.
9: Livius? I have a note in my records, in my database, for Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. I think I heard this from you. I don't have a habit of writing where I get this information from. Maybe I should start. But I have a note here that says uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is an expansion of Genesis 3, 15. Adam and Eve had three relationships. Image of God implies the relationship between human beings and God. Male and female implies relationship among human beings. And Dominion over the earth implies relationship with the earth. Adam and Eve have these three relationships to God, to each other, and to the earth. Right. And actually, we're getting into that
4: in the next lesson. Sorry. That's okay. But these series of lessons bring up Genesis 12 several times. And so what I've chosen to do is rather than have the repetition, because this lesson was written by different people, each one was a unique author. So... You may have some repetition here, but to avoid that, I've taken pieces and applied them differently. So we will get more deeply into that next time. Genesis 12 does relate back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But today I would like to highlight the moving forward. Uh, Genesis 17 and verses 1 to 8.
3: When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you, you shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God.
4: All right, when you lay Genesis 17 and Genesis 12 side by side, you see the same three promises, but they're worded differently, and that can help us here. Instead of simply the land that I will show you, here it specifies the land of Canaan. So it's a very specific land that God had in mind. Instead of a great nation, it talks about him having a multitude of children. He will be very fruitful in terms of creating many, many descendants that would end up making up the great nation. And then finally, instead of blessing here, It talks about the covenant. It talks about, I will be their God. They will be my people. It talks about relationship. So when God said, you will be blessed, Abraham, he meant you will have the relationship with me that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Relationship will be restored, and then you will connect with other nations and restore my relationship with them as well. So you have three promises. The promise of blessing or relationship with God, the promise of a nation, many children, and the promises of a land, the land of Canaan. Here's the fascinating thing the fulfillment within the books of Moses is very challenging. You can see that these three promises are fulfilled in Abraham, but not without challenge. For example, the challenge of many children you will have many children. Well, his wife is barren. His son's wife is barren. Jacob's, the grandson's favorite wife, is barren. There's famines. There's invasions. There's all kinds of problems. In other words, fulfilling the promise to have many children is not something Abraham saw in his lifetime. He had to take it on faith. By the time you get to Genesis 50, long after the time of Abraham, There's 70. When you get into Exodus, you're talking about tens of thousands as a minimum. So the promise was fulfilled within the Pentateuch, but gradually, not right away. Abraham himself never saw the fulfillment of the promises. The fulfillment of relationship with God began at Mount Sinai and then goes through Leviticus and Numbers where God establishes relationship with israel through the sanctuary services and then the land of canaan comes into focus in the book of deuteronomy so you look at the five books of moses they all go back to genesis 12 1 to 3 that's the foundation text that clarifies all that god was going to do for them but even then it wasn't the final fulfillment the blessing to the nations never happened. Israel became a nation, but they never blessed the other nations. They never converted the other nations. It was always a promise. It was still cast off into the future. There were glimpses, Solomon and Sheba, for example, Naaman. You had little glimpses of possibilities here, but Israel as a whole never achieved the promises that God gave to Abraham. And therefore, the New Testament applies these promises in Christ to the gospel to the world let's uh, go to number five in the handout because that's where that gospel to the world begins to be uh, carried out before we do that sean you had a comment
6: yes john your last comments really sparked the thought that mission has no guarantee the fulfillment of the covenant had no guarantee of course it was dependent upon the response of those who were involved in that covenant, but. I'm just thinking in my world, my mission, my effort, my love, the applied goodness that I may have through God to somebody else has no guarantee. Is the completeness of the mission dependent upon a particular outcome?
4: Uh, The bottom line is we can't convert anyone. change of mind, change of life is a miracle. Whenever it happens, all you can do is put yourself in places where those miracles can occur. And when they do, there's great rejoicing. I have done many forms of ministry that, in the end, I scratch my head and wonder whether anything at all was accomplished. There have been other times when things far exceeded any conceivable expectation, and that would be the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit works. When the Holy Spirit works, not you don't command it. You know, just as God does not exercise His authority by force. Uh, We can't exercise the Holy Spirit by force, and I do fear that some of my Christian friends do have a tendency, you know, to almost demand the Holy Spirit heal in a particular setting or convert somebody uh, in a particular setting. I'm a little uh, leery of that. We don't convert anyone; it's the Holy Spirit that does, and it's a combination of the Holy Spirit's intentional work with that person's receptivity. Jesus Himself said. I have many things to tell you, but you can't handle them now. Who is he talking to? The demoniac? No. He was talking to John, the beloved disciple. He was talking to Peter, the annoying but very effective disciple. He was talking to the 12. I have many things I would love to tell you, but you can't handle it now. Jesus, in his teachings on the earth, didn't say everything he could have said. He said what people were prepared to handle. And so when we go out to do mission, we have no control over the results. It's a combination of the Holy Spirit's initiative and that person's receptivity. But we can put ourselves in the place where the Holy Spirit can work. We can put ourselves in the place where our influence may help people be more receptive.
1: Bob? When prophecies were given in the Old Testament, what was going to happen to Christ that he was going to essentially— It was foreshadowing he was going to be crucified. Did that mean that when God was throwing these ideas out to Abraham, he recognized in advance that Israel probably would not be able to fulfill what he hoped it would do? Because it seems like there's an advanced understanding what's going to happen, that the Jews will not fulfill their mission. Just a thought. Well, it's
4: interesting. In Deuteronomy 28, He sets ahead two paths if you obey work with me you'll be the greatest nation on earth if you disobey you'll end up in captivity so there were two options did god know which one they could choose or would choose well there's a hint of that in deuteronomy 30 where moses says to them when you go into exile here's what i'd like you to do here's what god is doing with you etc so There is the hint, even in Deuteronomy, that while there's two options, they were going to take the road that God would prefer, that they'd not travel. So, yeah, the whole concept of remnant in the Old Testament is God's answer to Israel's failure. God would continue to work with Israel, but through the faithful ones, through the handful that really got the mission, the handful that were receptive. Comes back to Sean's question earlier combination of what God Initiates and what people are willing to receive, and in Israel's case, some received it to some degree, and in the end, God chose to work through that remnant, which included the remnant of Jesus' disciples, who were a remnant among the Judaism of their day. So the concept of remnant is how God deals with the fact that human institutions as a whole never quite get their act together.
8: I have some conflicting thoughts because was that promise to Abraham, a declaration that all of his descendants were going to become a blessing, that he was going to be, or his descendants was going to be the source of blessing, or that through him, through his descendants, the blessings of God were going to reach humanity? In a sense, that's exactly what happened. hmm We didn't have to have all of the Jews, all of Abraham's descendants, to partake from the blessing themselves. But essentially, Judaism, through the picture that we have through the Bible, is where Jesus came, right? And this is where we got from the Hebrews, from the Israelites, is where we got Jesus. So in a sense, that was accomplished. Because the plan was not, you will be the blessing, it's through you, the blessing will be reaching the entire earth. Anaya, I, I feel that, I benefit from that. So I won't feel like they fail because it was not their task. It was God's task. It was God's promise to Abraham that he was going to accomplish something through him. And with all the odds against him, he did it.
4: Yeah, I like the way that you're framing that in a sense. Israel as a whole failed, but Israel as a remnant did not fail, and God was able to use them. And It does say, through your descendants, the kingdoms of the world will be blessed. So for the New Testament, Galatians 3 in particular, Genesis 12 is fulfilled in the ministry of the church to the world. Of the disciples of Jesus. So, Jesus becomes the focal point of Israel, and then his disciples, like the 12 tribes, go out to complete the mission. So, there's a now and a not yet in both the Old Testament and in the New. Acts 1, verse 8 is the how this would be achieved.
3: But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth.
4: So in Acts 1-8, there are three stages that are listed here. They begin with Jerusalem, and then they go to Judea and Samaria, and then they go to the ends of the earth. And you see that worked out in the book of Acts. This is a programmatic statement at the beginning of the book of Acts to to define everything that's happening. It begins with Jerusalem, chapters 2, 3, 4, 5 six seven all of that happens in jerusalem but then with the stoning of stephen comes a persecution that drives many of the disciples out of jerusalem and they end up in judea like philip and the ethiopian they end up in samaria like peter and philip i think also who went to samaria so they are driven out of jerusalem and they end up in judea and samaria and then The rest of the book of Acts starts talking about Cyprus and Asia Minor and Greece and Rome and and so on. So the gospel ends up going to the ends of the then known world. So it's a program for the early church. You'll begin in Jerusalem, you'll expand to the wider neighborhood, and you'll end up going to the world. The lesson suggests that each of us can follow a similar pattern. Is available to us, start where you are. Jerusalem mission begins with family, neighbors, friends. Judea and Samaria, these are the people that Jerusalem had the most in common with. These are people with a common biblical heritage. The Jews and the Samaritans, when you go outside of your family, you go to those who are the most like you. You go to people who speak your language, people who speak your culture. But ultimately, the gospel won't go to the world unless somebody crosses geographical and cultural barriers. And that's where the concept of missionaries come in. So let's start drawing this to a close, but I have one more question for you to consider, and that's number seven. It says, the credibility of the church's influence in a community is determined by the extent the church's interactions with the community reflect the true nature and character of god if all your community knew about god was what it learned from interacting with your church and its members what would that picture of god be like so if all your community think of your church your local situation if all your community knew About God was what it learned from interacting with your church and its members. What would that picture of God be like? While you're thinking about that, my community is Loma Linda. And in a sense, this one is maybe easier to define than most communities. I think the picture of God that comes from Loma Linda is pretty clear. Just yesterday, as I was on campus, I ran into a man who approached me to ask some questions because he was visiting. Our campus. And he was describing what he knew about Loma Linda. And it was pretty exciting to hear. I think that there are two messages that the community around Loma Linda gets. One is they care about us. And that's what this gentleman was saying. He says, the patient care that we've experienced, what my wife is experiencing as an employee in the medical center, he says, it's just, it's way different than anything I've ever experienced anywhere else. You know, you think of the story of the San Manuel tribe of uh, Native Americans. For 50 years, they were a neglected community in the San Bernardino area. The only medical care that they ever got was when Loma Linda doctors would get on horseback and ride out into the reservation to deliver their babies, or they'd send a truck full of medical students to the tribe to do uh, basic care, etc. Never got a penny. Never asked for a penny. Tribes like that have long memories and they remember what Loma Linda did. And I've heard the chief of the tribe just talk about, you know, you were there when no one else cared. He said, a lot of people today, you know, we're doing pretty well financially. A lot of people come and they want some of our money, but he says, you were there when no one else was and you cared. And they got a picture of what the God of Loma Linda was like. The other thing people know is the Blue Zone, they've got something that we could use. They have something that we don't have that makes a difference, you know, longer life, healthier life, etc. So those are two things that if Loma Linda disappeared, two things that might be lost to the community. In a couple minutes we have left, is there any reflection you might have like that, Sean?
6: Yes, a uh, two-hour conversation on Thursday of this week included a couple of very definite features in addressing the question that you've asked, John. This individual that i am associated with through work really boldly exclaimed the helpfulness of my church to him and his family and was really showered by love and continues to be showered by love very very important to him that in contrast to his very clear statements about the rather extreme beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist church it was an interesting contrast that has set me up, really, in the last couple of days to really be more prayerful and more assertive in my own search for how to close that gap. So I just want to make that comment in terms of my impressions of my local community through this one person.
4: That's a very, very interesting comment. It makes me remember that Ellen White said, never lead with the more objectionable features of our faith. And that never meant as much to me as when I read the Oxford biography of Ellen White, in which it said that when Ellen White spoke to people outside the Adventist church, and she often was invited to speak, she never talked about the distinctives of the Adventist message. She always talked either about Jesus or about temperance. Those are the two topics. And so she is a model when we're engaging people in the community. If you're making the objectionable features of the faith front, row, and center, that's all they'll remember. And keep in mind, the clearest picture of God some of these people will ever have is the one that they see in you. And I think if we keep that in mind as we're working with our workmates, uh, neighbors, colleagues, if you profess to be a follower of God, People will assume that your behavior reflects your picture of God. And they will then see God in the way that they see you. Our children tend to see God in terms of the way they see us. Rita?
0: The question in your number seven, if all your community knew about God was what it learned from interacting with your church and its members, what would that picture of God be like? I have a sneaky suspicion that most church communities think they have, that are portraying the right picture of God. And to do a a self-reflection like that ought to be compared with actually asking the community, what picture of God do you get from us? And there may be a very great disconnect there, Mm. Um, a wake-up call to us.
4: Yeah, the clearest picture of God was the one we see in Jesus. The clearest picture of God that most neighbors will see is the one they see in you. Yeah. We need to draw to a close. So Let's go to number six and we'll close with that. It says, The lesson offers two challenges this week. One, pray every day for the community where you live. God has placed you there for a reason. Number two, research the demographics of your community what ethnic groups predominate what religions are represented consider the average age predominant religions languages spoken and relative economic status of most members of the community ask god to show you how to represent his character to one or more of these demographic groups i think that kind of makes it a practical what the theme of this lesson was let's pray We thank you, Lord, that we more and more see in you and in Jesus the picture of how we should look to you and how we should be toward others. We are incapable of truly and totally reflecting your character, but as we get to know you more and more, we come to reflect your image more and more. We are disciples, and as we learn as disciples, You encourage us to be mentors of other disciples. We invite your presence to that end for Jesus' sake.
0: Amen.